Our text for meditation on this 13th Sunday after Trinity is our Gospel reading, Luke chapter 10, verses 23 through 37. Hear the word of our Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think? proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Now grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's sermon marks the inaugural homily for the Very Lutheran Project. Because of this, I believe it appropriate to make a splash by angering some people, and then, hopefully, to show them the wonderful truth of our gospel passage today and bring them some cheer. Whenever you start something like this, it must be done with gusto and brevity, so let us pull no punches. First of all, Let us address the big problem with how the parable our Lord Jesus teaches is twisted and mangled by modernist preachers today. They will go on and on about how our Savior is rebuffing the notion of prejudice, that one last sin that they can stomach to condemn publicly. They will say that this proves how the gospel commands us to tolerate all sort of different people and behaviors, to have no special love for our own, and even to treat all human beings as though they were family. They base the entirety of their argument on Christ's illustrative use of the Samaritan in the story. Because Samaritans were the descendants of northern Israel mixed with the Assyrians and the peoples they imported, the false teachers of our day Suppose that the real conflict here is one of racial estrangement. The lawyer who speaks with Jesus is a bigoted pure blood who hates the 
half-breed Samaritans for no reason other than their being different. Thus the idea goes that Jesus is condemning those who would notice differences and patterns or care for their own people above others, all based on a hypothetical good Samaritan who becomes the epitome of tolerant neoliberal virtue. Of course, this is all hogwash. Samaritans and Jews were not enemies because they were of different races. In fact, the vast majority of people the Assyrians imported to mix with the remnant of Israel were Semites, since the Assyrian Empire spanned the Near East, from Egypt to Persia. The ethnic difference between Jew and Samaritan would be akin to the difference between a German and a Frenchman, or a Japanese man and a Korean. Same race, similar ethnicity. But even then, this is not akin to rival gangs of Irishmen and Italians battling it out in New York, having vast cultural differences or something. Like the children of Judah, the Samaritans cherished the law of Moses, made sacrifices, looked forward to the coming Messiah, and held dearly to familiar traditions. No, beloved. The reason Christ chooses the Samaritan to be his example of a neighbor is because there was history between Jews and Samaritans. Pain. Biblically speaking, the Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and undermined every reform Ezra and Nehemiah set out to accomplish. When Antiochus Epiphanes began to force Hellenization on his empire, the Samaritans formally separated from the Judeans and refused to assist them in the Maccabean revolt. In 112 BC, John Hyrcanus, the Judean leader, ordered the total destruction of the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, and the Jewish people declared the day a holiday in which no one was permitted to eulogize the dead. There was constant tension and conflict between Samaritan and Jew for close to 500 years by the time our Lord spoke this parable. To call it senseless prejudice in favor of whatever morality is getting spewed out these days is to ignore real pain between both groups. It was the Hatfields and McCoys on steroids. Today, as a result of this long-standing conflict, there are less than 1,000 Samaritans alive. When Christ brings the Good Samaritan to the fore, enemy not foreigner, is the word which comes to mind. But why this parable in the first place? The lawyer comes to our Savior to try to test him, to put him on the spot. Depending on how he answered, this would mean either to see that he is the real deal and to follow him, or to see him make some gaffe or mistake that will diminish his standing among the disciples. In all likelihood, the lawyer was expecting the latter outcome, as he was already quite capable in the matters of Mosaic law. When Christ asks him what he believes the answer to be, he rightly answers that one must observe the two greatest commandments, to love God with the entirety of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. He's good at his job, and he knows it well. As an aside, 
allow me to notice something. What does our Lord ask this lawyer? In verse 26, he asks, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Note here the amazing power of these questions. He does not ask, what do the Pharisees say? He does not ask, what does the Sanhedrin say? He does not ask the lawyer what the church fathers or the pope or the ecumenical councils or the magisterium or anyone else from the veritable circus of church history have to say. No, beloved. He asks first what the law says, what the word of God has said about the matter in the Pentateuch. In a time when there were interpretive authorities in Judea, especially the Pharisees who sat on Moses' seat, Jesus Christ puts the scriptures above them all. He does not require their interpretation of the text as he asks the lawyer what he sees. Of course, we can all imagine that he would not ask that second question to the uncatechized, but the point still stands in agreement with Luther. Quote, a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. Should a man be properly armed, properly raised up in the Bible, then no Pharisee, nor pope, nor council is necessary. All these offices would be properly used to teach what is written, not their oh-so-pious opinions about it. But I digress. Upon the lawyer's correct answer, that eternal life is found in obedience to the two greatest commandments upon which all the law and prophets depend, our Lord answers with, You answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Does this hearten the lawyer? Does he feel cheer at his apt reading of scripture? Absolutely not. He has just heard the law, and the law always accuses. In theory, obeying these two greatest commandments would lead to your eternal life. But in fact, the moment you hear them and actually think about whether you have obeyed them, you will find that you have failed miserably and have no hope on your own account. The lawyer responds by doing what most of us sinners do. He attempts to justify himself, to rationalize, to ask a pointed question that will allow him the wiggle room to weasel out of his clear failure. We do the exact same thing. Do not find fault with me for fornication. We are getting married anyway. And besides, the world has made waiting for marriage near impossible anyway. She would leave me if I didn't, and so on. Oh, no one will miss that money I took. It was just lying there out in the open. Or, of course I lied about her. Just look at what she's done to me. How about love is love? Oh, I drink this much to relieve stress. You have no idea how stressful my life is right now. We all have that same desire to rationalize our sins so that we can somehow pretend that we are holy. The only difference between us and the lawyer is that he cannot in that moment justify himself. There is no way he can truly confess that he has fulfilled these commandments. He is before Christ the living God and being unable to rationalize his sin, he asks Jesus for an excuse. Does our Savior give it to him? Of course not. 
The law is still the word of God, and it will not be denied. Jesus does not say to the man, Your neighbor is only the people that you like, beloved family members and friends and co-workers. Instead, he tells the man a parable that points directly to the gospel. Remember that this entire interaction started with the lawyer asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. We cannot forget this. It is the very key to understanding the parable. In this discussion on eternal life and obtaining it, our Savior tells a story that, together with the lawyer's part, gives us a law, gospel, and response sermon. An unnamed man is robbed and beaten within an inch of his life. He will die if no one comes to help. In this same way, we are left robbed and beaten and dead in our trespasses, like vaguely animated corpses. The priest comes and passes by on the other side of the road. This is no sin, by the way. In fact, it would have been sinful, according to the law, for the priest to surrender his ritual purity while he was in service. Of course, the law, being holy and righteous and good, cannot save us filthy sinners. But then the Levite, an attendant to the law, passes by in the same manner. Neither shall any religious devotion to mere moral precepts save us, as they are just passing along the guardianship of our former captor, the law. But then Jesus brings up the Samaritan. I must remind you, brothers, that the Samaritan was a stand-in for enemy. And indeed, before our conversion, we were enemies with Jesus. To the carnal, unregenerate man, Christ is in fact the chief enemy. St. Paul states it clearly in Romans 5.10, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We were once hostile to him, having minds altogether alien from the mind of God, until Christ himself came and saved us out of his own good will. A Samaritan would have no worldly reason to deliver a Judean such baffles the mind today. Likewise, our Lord Jesus did not have to save us, but did so for our own sake. Yes, beloved, the Samaritan represents our Lord Jesus in this parable. He even brings up the good Samaritan pouring out costly oil and wine soothing and healing treatments and binding up the wounds. Without this care, the man would have died. Christ Jesus poured himself out on the cross for our healing, for otherwise we would all perish in our sins and belong with the devil in the lake of fire. The Samaritan pays the innkeeper. He does all of this at his own expense, just as salvation is the free gift given to us by our Lord Jesus. The Samaritan even promises to come back, and so too has our Lord promised to return one day. We were dead in trespasses. Jesus brought us to life. When Christ asks the lawyer who the neighbor was, the lawyer rightly answered, the one who showed him mercy. And so Jesus, 
who gives us the ultimate mercy which no other can give us, goes from being our greatest enemy to being the one whom we love the most. You might notice that it seems the analogy breaks down at go and do likewise. It sounds like Jesus is merely affirming that enemies are neighbors too at the end and is commanding the lawyer to love his enemies. This is where the false teachers bank the entirety of their abominable mangling of this passage. Go and do likewise. See whether the parable is about Jesus or not is beside the point. We must sacrifice ourselves for all peoples, no matter what. There is a bait and switch here. The Samaritan helps the dying man when the situation calls for it. They take the very concept of loving one's enemies and broaden it to absurdity to try and guilt you into doing stupid things like sacrificing all of your possessions and time and your family for people who hate you and want nothing to do with you. They have warped the application of this parable into something unrecognizable, failing to see the concentric circles of priorities for Christian love, God, family, neighbor, people, stranger, mankind in general, and then enemies in that exact order. Remember that the Samaritan goes right back out to attend to his own business once he knows that the man is safe. They forget what the do is when Jesus says, go and do likewise. Do what? Do the exact same thing as the Samaritan? Give up all of your well-being and pour yourselves out to the point of death? My goodness, if we did that, then there would be no innkeeper. In the parable, the innkeeper is charged with caring for the dying man until the Samaritan returns. Christ has charged the church with caring for believers until his second advent. The Samaritan pays for the lodging, and so has our Lord provided well for the church to house the souls which need care. If all Christians obeyed these false teachers and pretended they were the Samaritan, then the rest of humanity would be damned within a generation, as we all kill ourselves or walk into martyrdom in psychotic gestures of pretend virtue. So if the false teachers are wrong... What exactly is the do in go and do likewise? Do what? Show mercy. Freely we have received, freely we must give. We are called to imitate Christ, but we are not called to be copycats. None of us are to go die on a cross for the sins of humanity. Such would be blasphemy. Jesus has declared here, this is what I will do. Go forth and be like me. But he has not declared, this is what I will do. Go forth and do what I did. If we see it the other way, then we have abandoned our post as the innkeeper, the man who was directed to show mercy in a different way. Have mercy, beloved. Have mercy on your enemies, forgiving them as our Lord Jesus has forgiven you. You do not have to be a victim, nor do you have to prevent your enemies from ever being held accountable. Lord, protect us from the fool of a court judge who lets a murderer free because of a false sense of mercy. But those who are your enemies must still be forgiven. 
and if they are in need, there is nothing wrong and everything right with coming to their aid if the situation is there. If you saw a childhood bully on the side of the road after a car crash, his arm broken, you know what to do. If your parent, who neglected you, needs financial help, you know what to do, even if that might not be giving them money, you must still show them mercy. You do not have to like them. You do not have to help them achieve their goals or dreams in life or some other stupid fake exposition from today's preachers. No one, especially not our Lord, is claiming you have to be best friends with them. But he does require you to extend enough love to forgive and have mercy on them when they need it. For so he did unto us first. The mercy which is required of the innkeeper is more important, though, than the mercy which is shown to our enemies. Here Christ has charged you and everybody in the church to love your fellow believer. Here Christ has commanded you to care for the soul of your brothers and sisters in the faith who are recovering from the formerly deadly blow and sting of death and sin. Of everything wrong with being under the devil's yoke. Here we stand firmly as guardians, teachers, and friends. In light of all this, knowing that neither our deeds nor the law can save us, we rejoice that Christ poured himself out to save us from our impending damnation, promising us deliverance and eternal life instead. May we then, seeing the great love which he has given, freely and cheerfully extend the same kind of mercy to others who need us. And may we stay steadfast as the hospital, innkeeper, and guardian of those souls to which our Lord has entrusted us. Now the peace of our Lord, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.